Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of Radio 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a closer look at the financial issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. It's no secret that water is essential to life as we know it. By 2025, it's estimated that over 60% of the world will live in water-stressed areas. So it's also no shock that ownership of water and water trading is big business. Australia has the most sophisticated market system for the trading of water entitlements that guarantee access to water. But does the market work effectively? Should something so valuable, so culturally significant as water be commoditized like shares? Let's meet our panel. Professor Mike Young, I'm Professor of Water, Energy and Environmental Policy at the University of Adelaide in its Centre for Global Food and Resources. Scott Hamilton from Melbourne University, expert in public policy and natural resource management. I'll start with a really fairly broad and basic question. If I wanted to get into the business of water trading, how would I go about it? You need to understand how water is allocated and the fact that Australia has a variable climate. Sometimes you've got a whole bucket of water that's available for use in a system and sometimes only a third of a bucket and that's when there's a drought on. So the horrible thing which Australia's had to wrestle with is how do you cope with a system that goes from one bucket one year to a third of the bucket the next year. After a lot of debate, a lot of trialling of different systems, it was finally decided to issue what are called shares. So you have a share of how much water is going to be available. You can buy shares in the system. And then if you're a shareholder, water is allocated to you. You have a thing that looks like a bank account, which at the time water is allocated, it's credited. As it's used, it's debited. Very, very simple. Um, that's the basic structure. So there's two markets, not one. There's a market for shares and then there are markets for allocations. Um, and in the early stages, the only people who were allowed to have shares or have allocations were farmers. And then gradually farmers worked out they wanted to be able to lease water and move it around and the water market grew. And often farmers would decide to retire they understood water, so they'd retire and they'd keep on leasing their water to other people. So it's growing in sophistication. A very important thing happened. that The value of water shares or water rights, as some people prefer to call them, went up on average for the first decade by about 20% a year. As people worked out, this was a really good opportunity and a really good way to expose yourself to the risks of farming and to be involved in it and you had a fluctuating resource. And now a a significant proportion of water is now held by people who don't actually farm themselves. But that's all part of the adjustment process. So we've gone from having shares and and allocations to a very sophisticated market structure, which still has a whole pile of improvements which were recommended at the time all this was set up and I was involved in it. Um, but our, our AC people in power decided not to go down and adopt all the recommendations initially made. And I support Scott in 
um, arguing for further reforms. I mean, we should probably get to you then, Scott, with uh, sure. the reforms <laughs> that you are arguing for with the current system. So what's wrong with uh, water trading and water markets as currently constituted in Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, and, um, and thanks for that, Mike. Look, I think that part of the fundamental problems were, well, one, that I don't think that we really had a clear view about what we were designing the market for. And so what sort of happened was we disconnected it from the land, which in itself I don't think was a bad idea in terms of one farmer or water user being able to trade water with another, someone else that could use it better. But then we opened it up further and we actually let the banks and the hedge funds in. Now, these were both people with no connection to the land or else the water in use, as Mike was saying. Their only and their reason for being is to make money. So it's not about what's best for the Murray-Darling Basin. It's not what about what is best for the economy or even this country. It's about how much money they can make and extract out of the basin. And that, I think, was a fundamental failure in terms of really changing this into being a way to get the best use of what is a very scarce resource. And as Mike was saying, becoming increasingly more scarce, especially with climate change, to something that was really a financial market similar to Bitcoin or those other things, and that's the real problem. What was the impetus behind the decision to divorce? Because I know in other countries there is a linkage between if you own the land, you've got the water entitlement. What was the impetus behind choosing to separate that here in Australia? This was a very important era, and I was heavily involved in doing this. We had a problem that there was way too much water being used we had to find a way to take water away from people. The choices of doing that, which is the way it's done in lots of parts of the world with horrible failures, is to just go through and strike people out of the system almost randomly. The alternative is to cut back on the amount that everybody's allowed to have by having things called shares, and you have adjustment. And then you get a very dynamic system, and the benefits from that have been huge. I can remember going into areas where there was absolute poverty around parts of Victoria, massive salinity problems. The entire systems were an absolute disaster. And when we introduced water, suddenly a whole pile of people in areas that were highly saline said, gee, we can sell our water to somebody else and get out and dry up their land. And they did that. They exited with dignity and there were massive changes very, very quickly. So very, very positive results. The emergence of hedge funds and things, I don't think it's a significant problem. I've been impressed by, for example, some Americans who came in thinking they were going to buy up a lot of water rights. And the farmers very intelligently said, gee, if you're prepared to pay that much for water shares, have them, pay me for them. The American farmers who were doing it lost millions of dollars. And after a few years, they left Australia with their tail between their legs and sold the, the water shares back to farmers at a massive loss. And it's throughout all of that, the water which was in the Murray was still being used. It wasn't as if we were taking the water somewhere else. So, in fact, that's an example of where some people did come in, did speculate. Farmers weren't silly. They, they made a lot of money out of people thinking they understand the market and making big mistakes. So there um, certainly were some um, farmers and water holders that did get a windfall gain from this market. 
Um, but part of the problem was that we let these banks and hedge funds in and we didn't regulate them, Toby. So normally we would, for this big financial products, this is talk $26 billion a year is what the water market's worth and trade is about $1.8 billion every year. This is big money we're talking about. And we made the deliberate decision not to regulate these banks and hedge funds that Mike was talking about. Yes, some people made some money, but it hasn't gone away. And I would argue that the actual result has been tragic. So let's just take Victoria, for example. Our biggest owner of water, and we've got about the best register in the country, is a Canadian pension fund that opened up a $1 shelf company which is called Fresh Country Farms of Australia, number 43. And that's the biggest holder of water in this state. And that's worth about $508 million. These are huge numbers. And the other problem, which I really think that was the fatal mistake of this particular market, was that I think that what was assumed or hoped was going to happen was that water would flow to its best use. So really up to those productive lands above the Barma chokers, we would think about them. So those areas where you've got the best soils and you can grow um, a lot of cereals and other particular crops and fruit, et cetera. But what we've actually seen is a massive shift of water from being in the upper parts of the system, above the choke, to below the choke. In some of the worst soils, some of the sandy areas and the huge growth in almond um, plantations in particular and other permanent plantations. There's been something like a... 1,500% growth in almond farms since 2000 and 30% in five years. It's just massive. As those permanent plantations mature and you've got to water them every year, you can't just like rice or cotton, use the water when it's a good year and don't plant when you don't need it. They're going to have a huge amount of water that they're going to require every year, about 700 gigalitres which is as much water that's in the system during a drought. This is bad and it's going to get worse. Do you think the market incentivises people to undertake those type of crops then, that it, it incentivises people to say, well, maybe I will grow almonds, even though environmentally they may not be the best crop to be growing in, in a dry climate? There are trade-offs. It's not just about water. It's also to do with costs of land, prices for almonds versus oranges rice and everything else. In fact, one of the big things I think Scott would agree with me is I've always argued that we need a very big and vibrant cotton and rice market and rice farms because they are annual crops and you can shut them down. Markets will get everything wrong. We live in a process of trying to work out what is the most profitable thing for Australia to grow. And we need to understand that the Murray-Darling Basin's choices around food that it produces and fibre it produces are all about earning export income. Australia feeds four or five times its population. We don't need all of the food. A lot of it is exported. Large farming is what's kept Australia prosperous. And interestingly, the first thing that happened when we allowed people to own land without having to have irrigation rights attached to it but still irrigate, with a lot of very smart farmers immediately moved their water rights through to their self-managed superannuation funds and they now buy their water from their self-managed super fund in a way which is, I guess Scott would say, is a 
hedge fund type structure and it's highly speculative. Australia's allowed that to happen and the question is really do we do something different for water and for agricultural land than we do for all other resources in Australia? Look, I think one of the other, and again, I'm not a, we're not against the idea of having markets because they can be very useful, but they've got to be regulated. And even Adam Smith with his invisible hand would say you can have markets, but you've got to be have integrity and you've got to have good information and a fair playing field. So on one side of this market, we've got irrigators and farmers, and they've got land, labour, capital, time of planting, all of these other constraints in terms of how they can make their trade. And then on the other side of the equation, you've got these massive hedge funds with supercomputers, also with big agribusiness. And so that really means there's not a level playing field. That's a classic market failure. And I think Mike would agree that we do want to have a playing field that's actually level and we don't have that sort of market failure happening. The other problem which I really see with our current system is there's not just one price. There's multiple prices over multiple valleys. And and, and in fact, Nick Keogh, who did the work as part of the ACCC's recent inquiry, basically said they found brokers, and one of the brokers was monitoring 30 websites in order to work out what the price. Now, the farmer just doesn't have that luxury. They much more um, need to be busy planting that rice and cereal so we can have food to actually make sure that we can feed ourselves. But there's a real problem that exists at the moment is it's very hard to discover the price and the depth of the market at any point in time. If there was one reform I would bring in, it would be a requirement that all traded prices that are at arm's length are available the day the transaction occurs rather than often a month or even much longer time period down the track. So there needs to be transparency. There is a very, very important proportion of the market which are off-market trades for a whole pile of reasons to do with the reality of the way farms work in Australia. A lot of off-market trades occurred just moving money and rights around from one bit of the structure. And that happens all over Australia. These things are very, very important when, for example, you have a young young farmer entering into a family farm and taking over from mum and dad. I do think that there are legitimate reasons. And one of the things that Mike was referring to was these $0 trades which happen across the market. And that's one of the reasons why we need to have a much more open and transparent market. And I think, again, as the ACCC found out, that it's very difficult to regulate what is not recorded. Let's talk about this regulation aspect. We've had report on report about the Murray-Darling Basin in a multitude of different ways. In March, we had the ACCC release their report into water markets, where they called for an independent water markets agency to oversee trading and ensure that the markets are operating effectively and with integrity. At the same time, the way in which water works as a resource is a tricky one to effectively regulate. The state aspect is something that has to be considered. You know, the Murray-Darling Basin spans four states and there are different requirements in different states. How do you think we can effectively regulate this market so that there is an element of what you've said, Scott, about transparency and that we do have an understanding of what's going on in these markets while simultaneously making sure that people are able to enter them and yet also remembering that this is 
this is water. Like this is the lifeblood of of communities across the Murray and Darling rivers. The first thing that we should do is to say that if you want to play in this market, then you need to have a connection to water in use. So you can't be a trader sitting either in Wagga or in Singapore playing the market when you've got no connection to that water actually being used. But then as we dug further, we found that more and more these big agribusiness farms where they were really skiting about how much money they can extract from the system. And probably the next step that I would be saying we need to look at is the externalities that's being caused by this trading, so the perverse outcomes. So pushing large amounts of water through that barmer choke during summer, which is when it's not usually happening, and that's causing a lot of erosion and other things to occur, and also in impacts on the on the fish and those sorts of things. Actually, all the issues that Scott's raising are not really about the market. Markets are excellent servants, are bad masters, and the master is the problem here. And the servant is actually doing things because the masters haven't put the right rules in place. One of the biggest mistakes that's been made is that when Australia set up the Murray-Darling Basin Authority against good advice, he didn't put in a means to adjust the limit, the total volume of water in an adaptive framework and then put a thing through which allows it to be adapted at the margins for a little bit, but not in an ongoing way to deal with climate change. That's not the market's problem. That's the governance arrangements that are put on top of it. And one of the original visions was that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority would be an independent authority like our Reserve Bank. They got watered down and the states wanted to get back involved. The ministers want to get back involved. And what we desperately need are the rules that operate for a lot of other things in Australia, complete independence and accountability. And that's the way to fix it up. I'm at the moment working over in the United States, but I've worked in the United States and in Europe and Canada, all on setting up similar sorts of markets to this one. And Australia has by far the best water management system. There is a lot to be improved still, but I would never, ever trade what they have in actually America for what we have here. We've got something which is fixable and fixable at very, very low cost and something we should be very proud of. Thinking about the fact that, you know, going forward, we're more likely to experience more intense droughts as climate change continues to occur. What does this future mean for water traders and for water markets? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that Australian farming is very, very complicated and there are, and farmers have to deal with massive numbers of markets and this is just another one of the things we have to do. The second very difficult thing for us all to understand is that the success of Australian farming is being by increasing the scale of virtually everything that's done in agriculture. So in my lifetime or my professional lifetime, where there was five farms, there's now one farm. That's a massive change, and that change is going to happen as Australian farmers keep on adapting and changing to new things, and one of those is how they manage and use water. And then bring on top of that dealing with climate change, 
and the risks and challenges around that are going to need a market. We've got to be very, very careful when we send public servants in to regulate markets other than to just share information and to do things, as Scott said, like have a standard price for water. That would be crazy in a system as complicated as the Murray-Darling that involves so many different parts and bits of it. So we're going to end up with something that's always going to be a little bit crude. And the thing we should be, I think, excited about is that people like Canada are investing in Australian water as a long-term asset. There's a lot to be fixed still, and we've got to keep on adapting it. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I wouldn't necessarily say that we're going to end up with one price for water. But just in terms of the problems that are happening with this, what I would say is an epic fail of a market, is that we've got this huge amount of water that what we thought was going to be used up the top of the system, so again, in particularly above the Barmer choke, is now being used down the bottom of the system with these permanent plantations. And they've got to be watered every year Otherwise, you will end up like California, which is happening right now, experiencing a severe drought, and we'll have ours pretty soon, and they'll be ripping those almond trees out of the ground. Um, And we'll be left with decimation of these areas because suddenly those pension funds and those hedge funds won't be making profits. They'll go and take their uh, their money and invest in something else. It's not going to to the people of the basin, that money, it's going to the people who might own super in Canada. For me, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. How we get all this right is going to have to be adaptive in the same way that superannuation firms will make mistakes and invest in the wrong thing. They're also making mistakes, I think, in investing in coal and gas and things like that, and people are getting out of it. This is all part of the dynamics of a market economy and the thing at the end of the day we have to be very careful to ensure is that Australia, I think, remains a prosperous country because of the competition and dynamics and our tolerance of making mistakes. Fix up the mistakes. If too much water is going through the choke, that could be fixed tomorrow. They just bring in a regulation and it says you can't trade any more than this amount. Prices on both sides will change and everybody will say, ouch. It just requires an independent authority empowered to change those rules. That's also a needed. fundamental problem, uh, Mike, and just moving to the issue of um, remembering that the market doesn't have a soul. And we do have a real another issue besides those environmental costs, which you can't just fix back um, in terms of those sorts of impacts on the environment and the endangered species, whether it be the Murray Cods or... Um, whatever it might be, you can't just fix that in terms of making a change to a market rule. That will be uh, irreversible change. I'd also just like to take a moment to acknowledge the non-fair go in our country in in regards to First Nations. So we've currently have in this, the way we've designed and set up this market, that it's just not accessible to to First Nations. And that's a real problem. And secondly, these forcing the water from valley to valley, so rather than having a market, which I would agree with Mike, that you can have a market where in a valley, 
but pushing it from above the choke or below the choke is having massive impacts in terms of the Barma choke and on the burial grounds. And there's um, lots of examples of where there's been impacts of 100-year-old trees falling into the uh, river, and so, a lot of these are sacred trees, and also issues such as having to move burial grounds, which is tragic. Like these nations have been there for tens of thousands of years. We've in 20 years designed this market and let it rip. And lots of people making a lot of money out of it, but there's a lot of people that are really being disenfranchised and we would argue decimated by this market. If you have a problem and you think that you need to give First, First Nations people a greater say, and I'd agree with you too, there are two ways to do that. One is to get them involved much more in the management particularly in the determinations around the total amount of water that can be taken out of the system. And I, for a long time, have said we should have an adaptive system that does that, which is a function of climate, not something which is determined by politicians, which is the way it is at the moment. The national and state legislation freezes the number. In McCall, and I said back almost 20 years ago, just go in and announce to everybody you're going to take a certain percentage back and take it back. Legally, we can still do that. In fact, the states don't even have to pay compensation to do that. If you want to, as part of that process, give some, some waters to First Nations, you can use exactly the same mechanism to do that. But that's an allocation decision. It's not a market decision. The market is still, I think, needed. If it hadn't been for the market in the last millennium drought, Australia would have lost a huge amount of stuff permanently. It was the market that saved us. And I hope that we still have a market in the future so that when we next have a massive drought, and I'm sure we're going to, the market will be there to enable us to decide how to reduce and share out the tiny little bit of water that's around. I think it's very important we understand the difference between governance and having independent, trusted governance systems, have accounting systems with integrity, and being very careful not to expect the market to do that. You can't do it. But markets have a very important process in enabling farming communities to continuously actually adjust and prosper. I think my one sort of final thought would be it's got to be a fair playing field. You can't have um, high-speed traders with lots of knowledge and lots of power on one side of the trade and farmers on the other side of the trade or Indigenous users or fishers or whatever it might, might, might be. It's got to be a level playing field. Another, I think, one key point out of this discussion was there's not just one market. There's lots and lots of markets we're talking about. There's those 30 websites. And so we've got to address that if we really want to make sure that our um, system's going to be fit for purpose going into a, um, a world where there's going to be a lot less water as well. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Mike Young and Scott Hamilton. You can find the full show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe, and I'll catch you back here next week.